Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Ertan Khan with us. Ertan is the founder of Multiple Capital, a fund of funds investing in VC funds across the world. So in this episode, we'll be talking about what is a fund of funds, how it operates, how they evaluate VC funds, how many of them they back in a year, LP reporting, diversification, his advice for emerging managers looking to raise their first fund and a lot more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Hey, Artan, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure hosting you. So to start things off, uh, can we have your story and how you became an LP because you run a fund of funds, right? Yes. So my story is like that. I'm, I've started to work for a family office in Germany and I was hired to do um, early stage direct investments. So I was hired to invest into early stage companies. And I realized very soon that I'm not the right guy to do early stage investments. I didn't have really a tech background and not really a, an investment background in early stage tech. And I realized that I'll use most of the relevant deals that I saw to top branded VC funds and top branded angels. <clears throat> so I went back to the family office and, and told them, look, I don't think that this is a wise strategy to do. And I proposed to do something completely different. And at that time, 10 years ago, um, something that almost no one really did, which was, you know, building a, um, a pan-European um, VC portfolio in terms of, you know, investing into VC funds as an LP instead of um, into companies. So instead of having 10, 15 companies in the portfolio, all of a sudden we had like 10 funds in the portfolio and 300 to 400 companies in the portfolio, ultra diversified across Europe. And it was very successful compared to the direct investment um and that's the that's the story wh- how I started to invest uh, into funds and how I became an LP. That's very interesting. Uh, and I would like to understand more about uh, contrasting the two, basically. Uh, the investing directly into startups, that is the VC fund model, and the, also the fund of fund model that y- you are doing right now. So I want to contrast w- what do the return profiles look like, what are the return expectations, and is it easier to manage a fund of funds? Do you need to have a bigger... Uh, bigger assets under management to be able to run a fund of funds or is that just a misconception so can you th- throw some light on that because I believe when you were pitching to the family office at that time that, okay let's do this thing I think you you would have uh, produced these facts that okay contrasting these two and why this might be a good approach as well right? yes. so um, starting with the last um, question um, I think uh Yes, the assets under management have to be slightly larger or let's say double uh, uh, the the assets because the fees are lower, right? So typically we have half the fees of a normal fund. Uh, means if a normal fund has 2%, we have 1% management fees. Or if a normal fund has 20% carry, we have 10% carry. So to get the same kind of um, um, fee generation, generating out, out of the fund, you have to have double the fund size. And there are other reasons why the fund size and fund of funds where asset center management and fund of funds can help or make sense. Um, in our personal opinion and with our thesis, we still think we can be very small as a fund of fund. Um, but yeah, you have to scale it at, at some some point to a, to a minimum level. That's it. To the um, fee layers, um, uh, it's very interesting discussion because I think very often it's uh, very much misunderstood um, by a lot of LPs. 
Uh, yes, there is a second fee there for fund of funds, um, but this is always a make or buy decision, right? And we think that uh, family offices that invest less than 20 million into that specific asset class through fund of funds or fund investments, in, in my opinion, it's very difficult to beat the costs that uh, were related to invest in a fund of funds. So again, running costs investing in a fund of fund is around 1%. So if you would invest like 5 million into a fund of fund, that would equal to roughly 50K costs per year. And we think that it's not possible to um, to deliver the same kind of quality and selection that we do with 50K costs at the family office level. So it will be just a mis misperception at a family office that they can do that for a 5 million check. So we think, again, up to 20 million, because that's roughly the cost that you would need 20K to run something similar that we do um, at a family office in-house, right? So. But if someone is investing 50 or 100 million, yes, it's theoretically cost-wise probably smarter to do that in-house or it's possible. But then on the other hand, especially fund of funds are used by larger vehicles, larger institutional vehicles, could easily do it internally cheaper for that amount that they're going to um, invest. And now we are talking about second uh, part, which is quality. You know, one part is quantity. Yes, quantitatively you can you know, again, after 20, 25 million, it's probably possible to do it in-house as a family office. We think qualitatively, it's a different discussion because you need the right people, right? So you need a team that is incentived, incentivized, and has the right um, alignment with you to do this right job. And most of the time, those people are like we, but doing their own business, not working for a family office. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult discussion, but uh, especially in reality, the larger the institutions, the easier for them to allocate through a fund of fund into um, an asset class like venture. But then our focus is at the moment the smaller ends, so investors up to 10 million, um, where we think you know it's almost impossible up to 20, 10 million to build something that we are building, and that's our focus. And for that, uh, the fees are even lower than trying to do it yourself. If you want to build this kind of diversified portfolio and want to screen the whole market and want to understand, you know, where to deploy the money. Right, absolutely. And I believe uh, even fund of funds must be having uh, their own investment thesis. So uh, if you have one at multiple capital, then what does that investment thesis look like? Our thesis is, um, you know, it hasn't changed for the last 10 years. So we were, you know, we started 10, I started 10 years ago when I was still with a family of to look and invest only in what we call micro VCs, so small VC funds. And um, so today it's still the same thesis for after 10 years, we look for micro VCs that invest very early stage. Uh, and what does that mean in, you know, in numbers? We invest in funds up to roughly 50 million in fund size. The average is between 20 and 30 million in fund size. And we expect those funds to deploy most of the capital pre-series A, which is for us something like a signal so as soon as you achieve Series A, it's it's not really, um, it's it's a very competitive game for the right companies. But before the Series A, it's still accessible. So if you have the right team in the right region or in the right vertical, you have a better access to the right companies. And that's the way how we built our our portfolio. And that's the thesis that we have for 10 years. Right, got it. And uh, like, like you just said that you have a thesis around investing in micro funds, micro VCs. And I also saw on your website that you're uh, mostly investing in solo GPs, right? So uh, why, why that thesis? What's the reasoning behind that? We're not mostly investing in solo GPs. We're just not excluding solo GPs. So we can always invest into a solo GP. So for us, 
It's not, you know, is it a solo GP or not? But for us, it is, is it a small enough fund and do they invest very early stage? And it can be a solo GP. So um, what it means in result, I think one third of our portfolio are solo GPs. You know, it's just a natural thing that solo GPs are small and very focused and invest very early stage. So that's that's the reason. But if a solo GP would run, uh, you know, there is a very famous solo GP, Oren Ziv. Um, if Oren is, you know, Oren is running, I think, hundreds of millions of, uh, you know, fund sizes, we would never invest in Oren's fund. Got it. Understood. And uh, while, while these uh, solo GPs or GPs are coming to pitch their funds to you, uh, on what basis are you evaluating their funds uh, while deciding whether to invest or not? Um, it, it's the same as for not solo GPs for us. So again, it would be like looking at the fund size, looking at the thesis of the fund, looking at the background of the GP. So it doesn't matter for us if it's just one, if it's one GP or three GPs. And the process would be more or less the same. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I wanted uh, across the board. So basically... What are the key things that you're looking for? Is it like the track record? What are the past experience and things like that? Or do you also want an investment track record as well? That What are your previous investments like? What's the return on that? So the investment track record helps, but it's not necessary for us. Okay. Um, but the ideal case for us is, let's say, two GPs who in the past maybe have founded a company together, exited that company, you know, earned some money with that uh, exit, started investing as angels for a few years together, build a portfolio of 50 angel investments, have some track with the angel investments, but at the same time, you know, one of them is maybe has also a technical background. So that's the ideal world. And then start raising a small fund. Now we're talking about ideals and then, you know, something between reality and ideal, right? So that's, but again, for us, again, the hard facts are very clear. We invest only in small funds. Invest only in funds that invest pre-series A. Um, we don't invest in broad generalist funds. So most of the time, we expect something where you are specialized on. That could be a region, or it could be a you know a thematic uh, focus. Um, again, track is helpful, but it's not necessary. Um, yeah, and and the rest is you know it's rather subjective. You know, can we do we do we like the JPs? Do we trust the GPs? Do we have good reference calls? Do other GPs in our portfolio like them or not? You know, do, do they have um, like who are the co-investors? Who are the follow-on investors? Are there you know people that people like to work with? And you know that that um, uh, decreases the number of you know the universe, so we can select them. But sometimes it's just very difficult. Sometimes you have two, three funds in the same region doing very similar stuff and. We like all of them, but we can only invest in one of them. Right, absolutely. And uh, it is always said that if you want to raise a fund or if you're raising your first fund uh, as a first-time GP, then uh, it's incredibly hard to like reach out to LPs and then pitch them. And like uh, LPs are not very visible all the time, like uh, unlike you. Uh, uh, a lot of these LPs are not have, don't have their emails in the open, so you have to really go and look for them, email them. You're not really sure are they seeing your emails or not. So uh, I want to understand uh, for the GPs that are pitching you, how much time does it take for you to, are, are you replying to all the emails, or all the pitches that you get, or are you being selective in that? And then how much time does it take to actually for an LP to show interest that, okay, this seems interesting, we can talk, and then actually then wiring the money. So how much time does it take typically? 
it depends. Um, it depends on various factors. It depends on if we are actively deploying capital because we are we are not always actively deploying when the funds are not ready. You know, in between funds, we have sometimes uh, no deployments. It depends um, how how much we have done in that year already. So if you are you know starting to deploy or if you are fully deployed already, uh, and reaching out to us and replying. It's always a challenge for us. We're a very lean, small team. We try to reply to all of them, but if you see it's clearly out of our scope, um, sometimes we just don't reply because it's easy to understand what we do. So we're not doing private equity. We're not doing a friend opinion fund. We're not doing, you know, this kind of things we're not doing. And if still someone, um, let's say an investigations person from that fund reaches out to us or even placement agent, we probably don't reply. But if it's a fund that is within our scope, we typically reply and we have, um, uh, again, the best way for us uh, uh, to um, to um, reply or cover the deal flow is um, we have a, a contact us button on our website, and which leads to an air table in the end and where you can share some of the information you know, that we need. And it's the easiest way to share because all the team of us have access to it. And it's much quicker for us to, you know, say yes or no. And uh, typically, if you say no, we, then we can say, you know, easily and within a few weeks, no. Um, most of the time, we have a, like a backlog of, let's say, four to six weeks so until we really screened all funds. And at the moment, it's just the case that there is an explosion of new funds. So it's not like 10 years ago, we looked at maybe 10 funds per month. Now we're looking at 100 funds per, per month. And it's a different, uh, and you know, it's a different scale. And um, and as soon as we like a fund, we let them know, and uh, we start the process. And what does that mean? Start the process. In our case, most of the time, it takes a few months even uh, until we commit. Um, again, different things. Uh, we try to see if they don't know, I've never heard of the GP. We try to build a relationship with the GP. Uh, with the GPs in another, in another geographical region, it's more difficult to build that relationship. So we try to keep an ongoing conversation that might be in you know, a once a month call, um, or we ask them to send us regular updates. And if they do that, we see like how diligent they are. Um, we see the process in their fund, what's happening. Sometimes, you know, the first investments. Um, again, for us, it's not, some of the GPs come back and tell us, you know, hey, we have we have this and that LP and now are you coming in? For us, it's not relevant. So we don't care about your other LPs, to be honest. Um, it's not a sign or a signal for us of other LPs. And it's not like an venture where, I don't know, if Sequoia is going to invest, you want to invest as well. We don't consider ourselves a following co-investor. Um, you're considering ourselves, you know, if you are completely um, convinced that the fund is the right bet for us, we would do it even without any famous known co-investor, co-IP. Um, so... For us, it's really you know, are you are you delivering what you promised more or less? Are you investing into the the kind of um, deals that you think you wanted to in the region or in your um, within your focus? Um, can you show us you know co-investors um, that that like you and that we like? Um, this is the kind of relationship that we build if we don't know the person earlier, right? So sometimes we know the persons already, so. For example, if, if there is a spin-off, if they are spinning off from a larger fund, we know sometimes the managers. And so then it's easier for us to commit because we know them. We know their brands as an individual. And then it can be within two months, you know, that we commit. 
and wire the money if we commit. Uh, and in the longest uh, case, it can take up to a year, you know, and from the first. I think in some cases it took two years because we met the team. They wanted to raise a fund and then it took them one, one and a half years to even have their fund ready to raise. And then they do their first close after two years. And we were like committing into the first close. After two years, we've met them in the first time. So this is really like the scope is between, I would say, six weeks to up to two years sometimes. Currently, funds are raising quicker. But if you look back two, three years, some of the best funds in our portfolio, they needed four years to raise their first fund. You know, one famous example is, you know, they, he's, a, he's considered a superstar now in Europe, but he needed four years to raise his first fund. And th that has changed now. Maybe it's changed again um, this year. I don't, I don't know. But that's the, that's the kind of length of time that we need sometimes to, to meet someone from the first meeting until we commit to it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly insightful and uh, something to learn for all the VCs out there. Uh, what's the expected time frame? And one more thing I would like to learn, like, is there a way for uh, a GP to know that is a fund currently deploying or not deploying? Because in a lot of the cases, you're not deploying at that time, uh, but they can still, your form is open, they can still write in, right? So is there a way to figure out if an LP, uh, maybe you or someone else, they're actually deploying or not? The best way is to ask, of course. And, um, you know, we are quite open about um, if you have a fund at the moment or not, if someone asks. We don't want to promise anything that we can't hold. And um, that's one way, I would say, to, to get that information. Um, uh, as you know or might not know, in Europe, you're not allowed to talk about your next fund publicly if you don't have a next fund. So it's always difficult to do that publicly. Um, uh, but in many cases, for example, if people don't ask us, we see that this fund probably will take six to 12 months until it's ready or they have done, you know, the first or the final close. We are not like, it's, it's fine for us. Uh, you know, we keep them in our deep flow. We keep them as a lead. And as soon as we're ready, we would reach out and then start the process. And sometimes we start the process even earlier when we think, okay, this is a fund that we really like and we want to be ready as soon as we are ready, right? So we do some pre-work. Um, you know, if you're convinced that this fund is a great fund, the GP is the right one that we want to back, and the timeline is could be within our next fund. We start doing the work earlier. Sometimes we miss, right? Sometimes we need longer, and we're not, we have not closed, and um, we miss those funds. And uh, but that's you know, it, it really depends. But sometimes we just do the work um, before. Again, really, it depends. But we're p quite open about it. We don't like there are other. LPs claim to have hundreds of millions and we know by fact that they don't have that. So we are not claiming anything like that. We are quite open about the funds we ask and um, we tell them where we are at the moment and where, what our plans are. So typically what our plans are is to do up to 10 investments or around 10 investments per year, 10 fund investments per year. We try to hold that every year. You know, At the moment, for example, we don't have an active fund. But we hope to be back in 2023 with an active fund, and then we will um, do the 10 investments in 2023 and continue to do the 10 investments in every year from now on. And we've done that more or less in the last five years, four years. Got it. And uh, like 
talking about the return expectations i know uh, for vcs uh, there are yeah, the return expectations are in multiple axes and most of the startups fail but the ones who succeed they want them to like really win big to be able to like balance out the others and then also turn a profit on the overall fund side uh, talking about your model the fund of funds right so what are your expectations expectations from the vc uh, that you've invested in uh, how, what kind of return should they be giving what's the typical expectation there so our case our focus on micro vcs um, leads to to outlier returns within the funds sometimes right so if if one of the funds that we invest in is in the right company or is in several right companies this has a huge effect on that fund in terms of returns because the fund was very small and invests very early. Um, so what does it mean in, in, in numbers? I think the best funds in our portfolio can return 10x or more, okay? And that happened in the past already. We are, again, we are invested in 45 funds so far and we have seen that happening in the past. Um, but at the same time, not every fund will return this kind of, not every fund will be an outlier. Like, you know, imagine you're a VC fund you invest in 20 companies or 30 companies. So some of those companies you think will be an outlier, right? But most of the time, I would say not all of the companies will be an outlier. So you will have, you know, um, some companies are performing well, some companies even not surviving, and um, a few companies performing extremely well in the ideal case. And this is very similar to our portfolio. So what we do is we select funds that have... Um, the opportunity to perform extremely well if they have the right companies in their portfolio. But that does not mean that all of the funds have the right companies in their portfolio. What it means is, even if in our case, some funds will extremely outperform, the majority of the funds will be an average return, and some funds will underperform. As soon as we have the outperforming funds, we as a fund of funds, become an outperforming fund of funds or let's say outperforming compared to the VC industry, right? And our target is always relative. So what we what we always say is that we want to achieve top quartile venture returns. So the top 25% of venture funds, you know, what they return as a fund of fund. And um, or even more important for me personally, top decile fund of fund returns. So being within the top 10% of fund of funds globally. So far, in the in the past 10 years, we achieved the target. And we achieved it almost quarter, uh, uh, vintage by vintage, so it means every year. And that that's by design, I think, by design of our fund, that's the, that's the uh, target that we have to achieve that, you know, being either amongst the 10% best fund of funds globally or delivering the returns of the best 25% funds, VC funds globally. Yeah, that's incredible and commendable that you've achieved that target already and you're doing that year on year. So great job there. And uh, one thing I want to learn about is like once you've invested in the in these funds, uh, then how 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 is the tracking happening, that that LP reporting that happens, right? How often you re receive those, uh, those LP reports and what all uh, contents do you like to see in those reports? Yes, very good points. Um, so usually we get a quarterly update from the funds. And um, unfortunately for micro VCs or emerging managers, the quality of the reporting is very, very, the range is very, you know, wide. And um, so we have some 
top quality reportings from some managers. Um, and we have really bad reportings, unfortunately, from some managers who have never done it and are not really good in doing it. So, um, so we try to communicate early on with the managers um, on what we expect or what we, you know, like to have, and ideally also what they should uh, um, prepare in terms of reporting for all the other LPs. So even those all other LPs, some of the LPs are first-time LPs, so they don't even know exactly what you know what they should ask for. Um, and so what we ask for, what is the most important thing, is um, to have um, some quantitative KPIs, right? So what have you invested in? What is the fund size? So, you know, in most reportings, unfortunately, not even the correct fund size is mentioned. So what's the fund size, the committed capital? What are you? What have you invested in? And then um, what is the markup in those investments? So what's the, what we call total value, you know, to pay it in to TVPI? Uh, if you can, also an IRR, you know, across a net. Um, if you have DPI, show us DPI. Um, DPI means distributed um, to paid in, so what you have distributed. Um, this, these are the most, like, important KPIs, not complicated. I think every fund manager should track those um, fund KPIs from the beginning. And it's also good for yourself to understand, you know, where you are compared to other funds. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is like a, a quantitative um, reporting, you know, what's happened in your portfolio, um, any um, uh, new investors coming in that you like, you know, we like signals that, that show that the portfolio go, is going good, it's going well. So we're not super detailed on the expectation on our um, investments. We are, again, an ultra diversified um, portfolio or fund manager. So we're not looking for in-depth um, uh, details about each company, uh, you know, that's not, it's not of interest to us, to be honest. Uh, we want to have a, um, a general overview that is good enough um, for us to understand where the portfolio is and to aggregate to, to our LPs, right? So we want to know what the value of your portfolio is so that we can aggregate those values and um, uh, define the value in our own portfolio for our investors. Now, having said this, we have the feeling that um, the reporting requirements and the compliance requirements increase every year, especially in Europe. Um, so it means that most of the emerging managers, even emerging managers, um, should plan with higher reporting standards and even with audits, for example, you know, audited reports once a year. That's a new thing that comes to us in our next one. So we will expect probably most funds to be audited from next year and when we invest in. And this is, uh, can be a challenge in some um, jurisdictions and others it will be, um, you know, it, it's just becoming more and more standard. Right, absolutely. And recently even like uh, some funds, some really reputed funds have invested in some of the companies that have gone away like in, in a day. And now there is a push for like even better uh, diligence to be conducted and standardizing the process of diligence that's conducted, that these things need to be there. Uh, when you're looking into a company whether to invest or not. So that's definitely getting a lot more attention now. And uh, one more thing that you mentioned in your answer was uh, that you're a really diversified portfolio, right? So uh, when you think about diversification, uh, are you thinking about di diversification in terms of uh, regions that you're diversified across different regions? Someone, uh, a fund investing in the US and someone, uh, a fund investing in India maybe or one in Africa. Or are, are you thinking about it sector-wise that, okay, there's an ed tech fund, there's a fintech fund, 
uh, femtech fund, maybe climate tech fund. So how do you think about diversification overall? Yeah, good question. Um, so diversification has several layers for us. Um, to your question, we do both. So we diversify across regions and we diversify across verticals. So we have, you know, regional funds investing, for example, only in Eastern Europe or the Baltics or Northern Europe. But we have also um, funds that invest, for example, only in blockchain across Europe or only in life science across Europe. So both of that um, is part of our diversification. But on top of that, we think diversification um, is also important by vintages. So it means that we should not invest everything in one year, but we spread it over years for our fund. We invest in pre-vintages, means you know funds from, let's say, 2022 to 2024, you know, three on four, three vintages. And those funds invest also over several vintages. That means the companies that we invest in are not only in different regions and different verticals, but they are also spread out over five to six years. That is the kind of diversification that we offer in one fund. Uh, and on top of that, of course, you know, we're, we've talked about regions and we've talked about um, verticals and we've talked about um, vintages, time. But what we think is very important is we diversify across individuals, right? So we have uh, in each fund, we have something like 60 to 70 GPs. Uh, and it means we have 60, 70 different profiles investing into companies. And if you look at, like, we always claim to have around 1,000 companies per fund. If you have 70 GPs or 1,000 companies, it's on average 10 to 15 or 15 companies per GP, right? It's it's not a diverse, like, it's not a, uh, a lot of people call our model a spray and pray model. But if you look at that, the average GP is investing into 15 companies. It's a very, very concentrated portfolio by GP, you know, per GP. And that's also a, a high diversification. I think the profiles, the individuals are very, very different when we look into our portfolio. We've never, we never wanted to invest um, diversified in terms of, you know, background of the individuals that we back. So it was always, you know, having a, a fund in Finland, a fund in Eastern Europe, a fund in Southern Europe, etc. But we never looked at the diversified individuals. But in the end, we realized we've backed solo female GPs. We've backed, you know, uh, a lot of uh, what we consider um, underrepresented, under-networked um, GPs. Um, we've we've done black female. Now I'm not even talking about it usually, but we have done, you know, black female GPs. We have black female GPs. We never looked at it. Okay, should we invest because they're black female or not? We just thought, okay, they're great, right? So. And this is the kind of portfolio that um, I think I'm I'm relatively proud about it because again we've never thought about it. We still have a relatively diversified compared to the the markets, a relatively diversified portfolio of individuals doing very different things. And um, um, I think one of the things that we try to implement more and more in the future is we look at um, diversity of thought. So we look if we look at new managers. Are they really diverse enough, not only by their background, by their education, by their nationality or ethnics? That's not as important because it happens. We're not excluding anyone. But are they, uh, do they have enough diversity of thought? Are they thinking differently enough to, to, make, it, um, to make a difference in, in their markets? And that's something that we you know, value more than, than other things. But that's the kind of so long answer to your question. But that's the uh, answer to the diversification. We think again, venture as well as like any other asset class 
if you are doing it from a passive um a, a, from a passive perception like if you're a passive investor like a family office for example or an institutional um you're typically not an active investor you should be a passive investor and if you are a passive investor it does not make sense to invest only into a german vc because they will mostly only cover german companies or a specific kind of companies it's not enough we think you should be even a global yeah you should have a global allocation right so maybe not even one fund of fund but three or four fund of funds covering globally you know uh, the asset class of venture if you really want to make it professional the same thing for private equity same for thing for um, hedge funds same thing for real estate why would you invest only in one country in real estate if you really want to have a real estate uh, portfolio allocation you should have a global real estate allocation which makes sense right and but think about it if you invest in bonds or in stocks where markets are accessible you would never see an institutional investor investing only in German stocks. They always have a you know global approach. They have U.S. stocks. They might have German stocks. They might have U.K. stocks. They might have some Asian stocks. So it's like natural thing to be globally diversified. But when it comes to venture, people think they have to only invest in their you know own cities. Sometimes you know you you're living in Hanover and you think uh, uh, startups in Hanover are the best startups in the world. It's just stupid, in my opinion. Like it could be. But the probability for that is very low. So that's why we think diversification in a, in a market like venture is extremely important. And um, and timing or picking is risky. Right, absolutely. Uh, great perspective on that. And now I'm going to ask my last main question before we go for the close. Uh, and this one is about what's your one piece of advice for emerging managers or GPs looking to raise their first fund? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, um, so we, we live in a time of noise, you know, so for VCs, there's a lot of noise in terms of companies, right? Because a lot of companies exist today and a lot of companies pitch VCs. So it's going to consider a lot of noise. For us, it's a, it's a similar um, development in the last years. There's a lot of noise in, in the markets. So a lot of new managers who we would consider as average managers, um, and for us, it's getting more difficult to identify and differentiate venture managers. So what what I advise is not to use, it's very important, not to use the common templates and common practice that um, a lot of advisors currently advise VC funds to do. So for us, if you do like everyone else, it's very difficult to differentiate. And today we have the feeling that you know, every deck looks like it comes from the same design agency. Every thesis looks like, oh, that's the, you know, that's the mega trend this year. So everyone jumps on that mega trend. Last year it was crypto. This year you don't see anything about crypto anymore, right? So the trend has uh, changed and all the VCs have changed. So for us, a VC fund today still convinced that crypto, if they are specialists in crypto, is the right thing to do for them. It's a good way to differentiate. So show us how you differentiate. Show us how you are better than the rest in your markets. That, again, can be a geography or a, a, a vertical. Um, sh show us that you have some, some kind of success within that. So either as a founder or as an angel, or maybe you've worked for a BC. So it's different ways, you know, or you have 
built a different profile. Every, you know, everyone knows Harry Stebbings, right? You're a podcaster yourself. So Harry was not really a venture capitalist before. So he was a podcaster and he became a venture capitalist because he built that great profile for himself, right? And, uh, and, it, and, and one of the best networks in the world, probably, in the venture capital ecosystem. That's very unique. You can't copy that. You have to find your own way how you build your profile and how you can access. And then one other advice that I would like to do is, you know, think really through if venture is really the right thing you want to do. I think venture became in the last few years a very, very um, um, sought after um, uh, uh, job, right? Uh, that many people think is a great thing. But many people underestimate the the commitment that you have to give into a venture capital fund. So a venture capital fund on average runs for 15 years. So if you start the fund today and you are 30 years old, it means that you commit the next 15 years to do one fund. Do you really want to do that? Are you able to raise follow-on funds? So otherwise it doesn't make sense to commit 15 years of your time. So you, you're building a business which is extremely long-term and you don't know the outcome. So you don't know even if you are in the carry in 15 or 20 years. So you might be not successful and not wealthy in the end, at the end. And again, for 75% of the funds, this is the case, right? So only 25%, you know, top quarter will return better than, you know, will return, let's say, good enough to have a reasonable carry for you. So having considered all this, think about, is that really the right decision? Do you really want to spend the rest of your life or a majority of the rest of your working life doing this VC job. This is a very important um, thing to think about before starting a VC business, I think. Uh, and I have the feeling that a lot of new VCs never think about. And this can create for them as well as for their LPs uh, great disappointments if they decide in five years, for example, to stop um, running the fund anymore. So it's it creates stress and it creates you know conflicts uh, within uh, that business. And um, so you should avoid that and think really carefully if you want to spend the rest of your time, especially those who have never been investors, right? If you've never invested into companies, I still think that being a venture capitalist means you want to be a venture, like an, an investor, right? So finding the right case company, investing money in it and making a great investment case out of it. If you're not really an investor, but you're maybe a great writer or you are a great technical person and build products, maybe you should not be an investor. You should not be a VC, but you should be a founder or a journalist or a podcaster, right? So I think there are different ways to be to become very successful in today's times. And venture is not the peak, in my opinion. Right. And especially if you're a young person, I would even say that if you have the skill set and the wish to be an entrepreneur, it's probably easier to raise capital as an entrepreneur compared to raise a VC fund. Plus, if it does not work out for you, you can stop in two years and say, you know, you write off the company. It's a it's a um, valid way to stop a business and start again or focus on something else. Whereas a VC fund, you are in a you know something like a trap for the next one, two decades. Right, absolutely. That that was really, really insightful for anyone planning to get into VC. And 
VC is actually a very shiny industry from the outside. It looks like uh, everyone wants to get in, right? But yeah, that that's that's some important piece of advice that everyone needs to hear. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on, Ertan. Uh, what would be the best place for our listeners to follow you, or maybe if they have a fund and want to pitch you, if you want to make that public, then what would be the best way to do that? Yes. So following, I'm relatively active on on Twitter and LinkedIn. So that's the both channels that we use as a firm. And for me personally, and same for my partner, Michael Jackson, you know, is relatively, as you know, probably relatively um, active on LinkedIn. Uh, um, so that's the channels that we use mainly um, uh, where you can follow us. Um, and for uh, pitching your funds, the best way is to go over uh, to our website. We have a contact us button. And again, you will land an Airtable where you can just give us the information that we need. It's a few um, fields, you know, like font size, uh, focus, etc. And you can also upload a deck. And that's the way how you um, make sure that the team has access. It doesn't matter, you know, to send me an email. If um, I get like hundreds of emails, it's sometimes I, I can't forward it or I, I'm not, you know, I'm missing some of the emails. So it's better to share it with the team. And the best way to share it with our team is to uh, share it through our website. Great. Uh, thank you so much. And I'll put all those links in the show notes below and the blog post that will go along with this episode. Thank you so much for making time for this, Ertan. It was great talking to you. I loved all the insights that you shared. And happy investing. Thank you so much for the invite and for the questions. Um, it was good to be here. Thank you. Pleasure hosting you. Thank you.